All right. This will be our last session in the Common Threads series. <clears throat> and hopefully you've been tracking along and you can, you can recall all the common threads, the themes that we've talked about. You could, you could explain how they overlap and they all tie in. I'm sure you guys could all do that. Yes, no, maybe. All right, let's run through it real quick. We started with, uh, we are created in the image of God to rule and reign alongside of God. We're invited to, to partner with him in, um, in helping creation flourish and thrive. So as people created in the image of God with this really important work to do, it's really crucial that we have a healthy relationship uh, between work and rest. So we talked about the Sabbath as uh, a built-in way to keep that relationship between work and rest healthy. And so as people created in the image of God, with this important job to do and a healthy relationship between work and rest, we also get to experience the presence of God on a very personal level and a corporate level as the temple of God. We talked about the temple as the dwelling place of God and that we uh, are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. So people created in the, in the image of God, healthy relationship between work and rest. Uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Therefore, we must be holy. God, God has made us holy. We talked about the theme of holiness and how God has set us apart and he's called us to holiness and he's made us holy and we get to choose to live uh, lives of holiness. And last week we talked about um, as people made it in the image of God with this important work to do and a healthy relationship with work and rest, we are the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit because we have been made holy, but now we live in exile. We live in exile. We're not home yet. We're a part of the kingdom of God as the church. The church is part of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not complete yet. And so we're exiles in this world. What does it look like to live as exiles in the world? All right, you got all that? So now we're gonna just, this is, the, this is the scarlet thread. This is the one that ties everything together. This is the one on which everything else is built. Today, we're gonna talk about the theme of Messiah in scripture. What is Messiah? Messiah is a, a Greek word. Uh, no, yeah. Messiah is a word. Greek is, Christ is the Greek, Greek word. Guys, I'll get there. Uh, it's early. Messiah is a Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ. Thank you, Andy. And uh, it just means anointed one. It means anointed one. Uh, so in uh, ancient times, when they someone was gonna be set apart for a special role, uh, they would be anointed. They would have oil poured on their head. And this was a sign of this person is being set apart for a specific task. And so the kinds of people that might be anointed were prophets, people who spoke the words of God were anointed. Um, uh, priests, people who mediated between God and humans were anointed. And kings, those who were called to rule over on God's behalf with God's authority were anointed before they became a king or in order to become a king. That was kind of their, their moment. So the concept of Messiah is that there is one coming who is going to serve kind of all three of those functions. There is one coming who is going to be a prophet and he's gonna speak the words of God. He's gonna priest who mediates between God and man and he is going to be a king who rules with God's authority. Who does that sound like? Don't get there yet. Don't, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here, here's the question. Why, why do we need a Messiah? Why do we need a Messiah? I mean, we, we recognize that there's evil in the world and someone has to do something about the evil in the world, right? So, Maybe the Messiah is the one who's gonna do something about the evil in the world. This is not a new concept and it's not just an old concept. This is sort of a human thing. For, for all of human history, humans have recognized there's evil in the world and someone should do something about it. In fact, um, any superhero fans here? Superhero fans? 
one or two, yes, maybe. So you can admit, some of you are like, I'm not admitting it, but I am. Uh, Superheroes are sort of an answer to this question. We recognize there's evil in the world. Someone should do something about it. Who's gonna do something about it? So part of the, the reason why superheroes exist is because we don't, we don't just recognize there's evil. We recognize that there is a supernatural level of evil in the world. Like, yeah, humans can be really bad, but it just seems like there's a supernatural level of evil in the world sometimes, doesn't it? Like, this is not just humans making bad decisions, but this, is, this goes beyond just human beings making bad decisions. When you think about the Holocaust, I mean, that is a supernatural level of evil. And so if we're going to combat a supernatural level of evil, we need a superhuman, a superhero. So we've created superheroes. Now, American culture didn't create superheroes. The, maybe the Greeks and Romans created superheroes. You remember Hercules and Achilles and all, all of these people who were the kind of, you know, the concept of a demigod, some, somebody who, who has this connection with deity, has these supernatural powers, the supernatural strength of Hercules or whatever that is supposed to be combating the supernatural evil that's in the world. The human history has stories all throughout that proclaim our need for a Messiah. We need someone who can kind of carry some supernatural power to combat the supernatural evil that's in the world. That's, that's been a part of human history forever. Because we know, we know that, that if the evil is supernatural, we can't, we can't conquer it ourselves. I mean, we've, we've tried, right? I, I mean, human beings have, have put a lot of effort into trying to curb evil and just, just the darkness that we see all around us. And we haven't, haven't done it yet. But maybe there's someone who can. Maybe there's someone who can. And that's what Messiah points us to. So we're gonna, we're gonna trace this theme from uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? So all of our themes begin in Genesis. We're gonna start in Genesis chapter three and uh, just take a look at why we need a Messiah, why you as an individual need a Messiah, why we corporately need a Messiah and, and why our world needs a Messiah. Someone who can combat the supernatural level of evil that's present in the world. So in the garden, we find that Adam and Eve have been given everything they need. They have this beautiful relationship with God where they submit to him. He's the one who decides what's right and wrong. And uh, as, as long as that stays in order, man, everything is just great. They have this one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because uh, if you do, then you'll die. The serpent comes along and the serpent begins to plant some seeds of doubt and to Eve's mind about whether God is being forthcoming, whether God is being honest with them, whether God is holding out on them or not. And so uh, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they do, their relationship with God is broken and God begins to issue some curses. As a consequence of sin and your disobedience, here's what's gonna happen. And he curses the ground and then he curses the serpent who's responsible for this deception, who kind of brought this idea in that maybe God's not being honest with you. So I wanna read about this curse that God puts on the serpent. Uh, Genesis three fourteen and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Now, on one level, we kind of just look at this and go, well, that's snakes, right? Snakes, you know, they have to crawl on the ground because of this, and people hate snakes. Like, in general, we don't like snakes. There's, there seems to be this kind of innate sense that snakes are bad, and we should just kill them all, right? That's, that's kind of where, how most human beings feel about snakes. But on a deeper level, uh, Scripture later identifies the serpent as Satan. Satan is the enemy of God, and he is here to disrupt the people of God and the things of God. And so this curse is not just for the, the serpent, the snake, this curse is on Satan. And so what God sort of prophesies or predicts is that there will always be animosity, there'll always be conflict, there'll always be war between Satan and humans, always. Because humans were made in the image of God to reflect his glory, Satan doesn't want God's glory reflected, and so he's gonna, he's gonna fight against that. So there's always gonna be this enmity. And Satan is a supernatural being. And so humans are not supernatural and we're in battle against a supernatural enemy. Doesn't sound like a fair fight, right? But God says there's coming one. There's gonna be a descendant of Eve, a human who's gonna come along and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. We're like, yes, that's what we wanna see. We, we, want, we want a superhero to come along and crush the head of the serpent. So then begins this, what we're gonna call for today, the vigil for the snake crusher. Where, where is the snake crusher? We cannot wait for the snake crusher to come on the scene and crush our enemy because we can't do it. He's a supernatural enemy and we're just human beings. We can't do it ourselves. Who's gonna do it? So you get to Genesis chapter six and you read about the state of evil in the world and how much damage has been done by this, this opening of human rebellion and this idea we, we can decide right and wrong for ourselves and the enemy of God has done some things that are kind of weird if you read Genesis five and six, there's some strange things happening with spiritual beings and human beings and, and the enemy is at work disrupting the things of God and bringing evil into the world. In fact, the, the phrase that, that uh, is thrown out here is that uh, in describing humanity, Every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. Oh, wow, that's bad. I mean, you think things are bad now. We're like, wow, things are, things are about the worst they could be right now. Well, is it true that every inclination of every human heart is only evil all the time? No, I, that's, not, that's not actually true today. So this is how bad it got. And then comes the hero, right? Noah, God finds this man named Noah and it says that he is righteous and that he walks with God. That's in Genesis 6, 9. Noah's right. Maybe Noah is the snake crusher. So God saves Noah and his family. He puts them in the, in the ark. Everybody else is wiped out. And we're, we're kind of like, if you're, if, you're, if you're in this vigil for the snake crusher, maybe you're going, maybe this is the guy, right? So the ark lands on dry ground, all the animals get off. The first thing Noah does is plant a vineyard, make some wine, and get drunk. And then something really weird happens like with his son. We're not really sure about the details there, but it's inappropriate. And you go, all right, Noah's not the snake crusher. Noah's just as susceptible to uh, the evil that the enemy is bringing into the world as the rest of us. So he can't be the snake crusher. The next candidate that comes along is Moses. And in Moses, we find this guy that God has called and he said, you're, you're my guy. You're gonna be the one to set my people free. And so Moses you know, goes to Pharaoh. He represents God. He speaks the words of God to Pharaoh. He's, he's like a prophet, right? And, and he, he rescues the people. They, they, this miraculous you know, uh, triumph uh, over the powerful Egyptians and they're free for the first time in 400 years. And we go, oh, maybe Moses is the snake crusher. Yes, the guy has finally come along that is gonna defeat our enemy and he's gonna set us free from sin forever. And then we find that Moses is disobedient to God. And God tells him to 
to talk to a rock and he smacks it with a stick instead. He disobeys. We go, well, if Moses disobeys God, then he's just as susceptible to the evil that the enemy is bringing into the world as the rest of us. He can't be the snake crusher. Uh, maybe, maybe it's David. I mean, it, David, right? David has got to be the closest that we're gonna get. David is called a man after God's own heart. God just loves David and David loves God. I mean, from the time he's a shepherd, he, he's, his faith in God allows him to defeat lions and bears with his bare hands, apparently. That sounds like a superhero, doesn't it, right? That's, a, that's superhero behavior. He goes out and he defeats Goliath, the, the, the giant. That's superhero behavior. And you go, maybe, maybe David's the guy. Not only is he a warrior, but he's also a poet. I mean, how, how, great, how, how, how great is that? Like he's, he's, he's combining these things and he's, he's a poet who writes these beautiful worship songs to God. And he becomes a king and he brings a time of peace by destroying all the enemies of God. And you go, oh, finally, the snake crusher is here. It's David. And then David commits adultery and murder and lies about it. You go, well, David's not the snake crusher. He's just as susceptible to the evil that the enemy is bringing into the world as the rest of us. It can't be, it can't be David. But then God begins to bring some promises about it. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that there is a descendant from David that's gonna reign on a throne forever. Then in Isaiah chapter nine, we find, for to us, a child is born, he will reign on the throne of his father, David. So David is involved here. Someone is coming from the line of David who is going to reign on a throne forever. In Isaiah 11, we get this language of the wolf will live with the lamb and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. So there's this promise. The snake crusher is coming, right? He hasn't, he's not here yet. It wasn't David, but he is on the way. And so then for the rest of Jewish history, up until Jesus comes, the people of God are waiting for the Messiah, and they've, they've put a word to it. They've put a name to it. There's gonna be an, an anointed one and he's gonna be like a prophet and he's gonna speak the words of God and he's gonna be like a priest. He's gonna mediate between God and man and he's gonna be like a king and he's gonna rule with the authority of God. But what they do while they're waiting is they begin to redefine or define Messiah based on what they think Messiah should be. In their minds, the Messiah is gonna defeat the enemies of God, which must be our enemies. I mean, if, if God loves us, then whoever is our enemy must be God's enemy. And our enemy is, well, f- f- it was the Babylonians. It was the Persians. It was the Greeks. Well, it, and eventually it's the Romans. And so we start thinking like, God is gonna defeat my enemies. That's, that's the Romans. And he's gonna wipe them out. And that this Messiah, whoever he is, is gonna sit on a throne in Jerusalem and he's gonna rule and we're gonna have a time of peace just like under David. And this is the image of Messiah that has been developed among the Israelites by the time Jesus comes on the scene. So when Jesus arrives and people begin to start putting some things together, they're doing the math on this. Man, this guy speaks with the authority of, of a prophet, one who is speaking the very words of God. Maybe. Maybe this is the snake crusher, but, but he doesn't seem to fit our mold. He's not a, he's not a warrior like, like David. I mean, he's not, he's, not, he's not going to Caesar to, to declare that God's people are free like Moses. This, this is not the Messiah that, that we thought we were gonna get. And so then we have this moment in Mark chapter eight. Have you ever uh, been watching like a movie or reading a book and you come to a point where you go, okay, this is the turning point. 
This is, this is the moment when everything changes. So maybe it's like, it's a movie where, where everything is really bad and things are not going well. And then you finally get this moment, like in Incredibles 2, when uh, Mr. Incredible starts acting like a real dad and taking care of his kids. And you're like, okay, this is the moment where things are gonna, some of you should go watch that movie. It's pretty good. But you can identify this turning point, this shift in the storyline. This is Mark chapter eight. This is the shift in the storyline of the gospel of Mark, where uh, you know things are not gonna be the same after this moment. Here's what happens. In Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the snake crusher, Jesus. We know exactly who you are. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So uh, we get, so this is good. This is a good thing, right? Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah and, and no one else can seem to put it together. They know he's special. Maybe he's, you know, John the Baptist had just died. Maybe, they, maybe John the Baptist came back to life and, and this, is, this is him. Maybe it's, it's Elijah. Elijah didn't die. Maybe, maybe God just sent Elijah back, right? And, and there's all these ideas about who Jesus is, but no one's really put it together that he's the Messiah, but Peter, Peter's like, yeah, we know, Jesus. We know exactly who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And Jesus, Jesus says, you, you know, he, you're right. But then, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, hang on a second, Jesus. This is, you're the Messiah. I mean, the, the stuff you're talking about, that's not Messiah stuff. That's not superhero stuff. The superhero doesn't die. The, 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 the snake crusher doesn't die. And so Peter's response, in verse 32, he, Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you're like, man, that's, that's some moxie right there. That's, Peter's got a little something that most of us don't have if he's gonna take Jesus aside and rebuke him and say, uh, you know, Jesus, actually, you're, you're wrong about this and you shouldn't talk like this in front of the other guys because they're gonna get confused and um, they're gonna start thinking that, that maybe we're, you know, we're following the wrong guy here. You can't, you can't talk like that in front of the other guys. So, but Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me. Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So when Jesus is rebuked by this arrogant kind of young man who says, you, you, the Messiah doesn't die, Jesus. You've got the story wrong. The Messiah doesn't die. Jesus calls him Satan. Why? Because Satan is the one who's trying to disrupt the things of God. Satan is the one who's, who's trying to ruin this plan that God has to redeem all mankind. Satan is the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Peter's not the enemy. Jesus knows this even in this moment when Peter is dead wrong. Peter's not the enemy. Who's the enemy? Satan. And so Jesus calls him out. And from that moment on, the, the, the Jesus' relationship with his disciples, the things that he begins to do and teach, they just take a different tone. Because he, he's, he's set his mind. This happens in, in, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter nine. You get the language of Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And from this point on, he's on his way to the cross and he knows it. So what Jesus did was he blew up 
Peter's model, mental model of what the Messiah was gonna be. He just blew it up. Peter wanted a Messiah to conquer and rule. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah, but I'm here to serve and sacrifice. And that just did not compute with Peter. But he couldn't deny the things that he saw. He couldn't deny the way that Jesus spoke with the authority of God, the way Jesus healed people with a touch or with a word. All of that stuff was so evident that he couldn't just walk away. But he had to change his idea about who the Messiah really was. He had to let go of his version, and it, and it was costly for him to do that. The Messiah didn't, didn't come to conquer and rule. He came to serve and sacrifice. Now, he will conquer and rule, but that's not why he came. So Peter does figure this out, and, and we see this in the letter that Peter wrote to Christians who were scattered all over the place, and Peter's writing to encourage them, and he's writing to tell them, hey, get, you, you're on the right track. Just, it's, I know it's tough. Stick with it, and here's what he says to them. In second, uh, 1 Peter 2, 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? He's talking specifically to those who are slaves or servants who may have oppressive masters. He said, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, uh, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because, because, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter got it. I mean, I mean once, once he saw Jesus die and then come back to life, he's like, okay, I get it. Service and sacrifice first. Ruling will come later. When, when, when Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is established, ruling will come later. But right now, it's service and sacrifice. And if Jesus can do it, I can do it. Because I'm, remember, I'm created in the image of God. I'm the dwelling place of God. I've been made holy. I'm, I'm not... I'm not a citizen of this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. This is not my home. Therefore, I can serve and sacrifice like Jesus. And this is where I think we have to wrestle with some things that the enemy is trying to put into our hearts and our minds through our culture about what the Messiah really means for us. Who is the Messiah? What does it mean to you to say, I am a Christian? Or what, what I, I hope we would be able to say is, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. What does that mean to you? What, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, I just jotted down some things that I think um, we tend to want from Jesus that maybe are not necessarily in line with who Jesus actually is. Uh, first is, I think we want a Messiah who wants me to be happy who sort of prioritizes my personal happiness and says, you know what? If it makes you happy, go for it. I just want you to be happy. Knock yourself out. We want a Messiah that will fight against my enemies. Like I get to define who my enemies are. I assume if, they're, if I think they're an enemy, then they must be God's enemy too. And, you know, just like the Jews thought, you know, well, Rome is our enemy, so God, God must want to fight against Rome for us. And that's, that's not actually what Jesus did. But we identify enemies, don't we? We identify people and groups of people and we go, man, those people are the enemy of the church, right? And we want, we want a Messiah who will fight against our human enemies, right? That's not, that's not Jesus. We want a Messiah that will indulge my foolish and selfish behavior and just say, oh, you know what? It's okay. You're, you're only human. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Like, no harm, no foul, you know. We want a Messiah that makes us feel good about our choices. It says, you know, 
you know, great, great, great job. You're, you're, you're doing great, you know? All of your ideas are the best. We want uh, a Messiah who will give us freedom to, do, to be whatever we want to be, you know? Just be whoever, be whoever, whoever you want to be. And that's, we want a Messiah that, that will tell us that. We want a Messiah that doesn't get too uptight about the truth. You know, this truth is not a hard line. It's kind of just, you know, it's kind of whatever you think. That's, that's kind of what we want a Messiah. We want a Messiah that agrees with all of my political opinions and, and we will invoke his name when, when we declare our political opinions and say, you know, God is, God is with me on this, right? We want a Messiah ultimately who gets us out of hell and into heaven and then leaves us alone. That, that's, that's ultimately the kind of Messiah that we want. But that's not the Messiah that we got because that's not the Messiah that we need. Who do we need? What kind of Messiah do we need? And what kind of Messiah do we actually get? We got a Messiah who can not only forgive me, but can change me. When we think about the evil in the world and this need for a Messiah who can fight against the evil in the world, how does he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus conquered death on the cross. He conquered sin and death on the cross and he set all humanity free. We're, we can be free from sin and death. Did things immediately get better in the world? Did like the darkness go away and now it's only light? No, no. Even since the death of Jesus, humanity has continued to perpetuate evil on each other all the time. So it wasn't like a light switch he just flipped and now suddenly sin and death is gone. How is Jesus pushing back the darkness? How is he fighting evil? He is changing individual human hearts and setting us free. He's looking at you and me and saying, you know what, you're, you're free from your, your sinful nature. You don't have to follow that. You're free. You're free to obey the Spirit of God in you. You're free. And every human who gives their life to Christ and begins to align their life with his becomes part of Jesus' mission and effort and battle to push back the darkness that the enemy is bringing into the world. We are the way that he does that. We need a Messiah who calls us to something greater something greater than, than anything else the world can offer, to a greater love, a greater love that we receive from God than any love we're going to get from anybody else, a greater love that we show to God than we're going to show to anybody else, and then we get to turn around and show that greater love to the people around us. We need a Messiah who makes the world a better place without compromising on truth or hurting people in the process. And this is what we wish we could, we could count on governments to do, but man, governments are, are full of people who are flawed and they make mistakes. And even people who abuse their power sometimes and leverage it to oppress or perpetuate injustice. But this is what Jesus can do. This is what the Messiah can do. He can actually work through his church to make families better and communities better and nations better without compromising on truth and hurting people in the process. What we need is a Messiah who can create a new humanity that will reflect the image of God. We need an entire world of snake crushers, right? There's just one snake crusher, right? I don't know, maybe. Maybe in Christ, we become snake crushers ourselves. Paul sort of hinted at this in Romans 16 when he tells the people, hey, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under your feet, like, we get to participate in snake crushing with Jesus. Let's be really clear about who the enemy is. We're not people crushers. 
No matter how bad we think another human being is, it's never our call to be people crushers. We are snake crushers. We are enemy. We're fighting the enemy of God, right? And, and God says, Peter, Paul says, God will give you victory over the enemy through Christ. So what we have to ask is like, is, is the Messiah that we got the one that we wanted? Or is he the one that we need? When I was a freshman in college, I, uh, my first roommate was an upperclassman um, who uh, was a little different. He was a different kind of guy. Uh, his name was Aaron Sawyer, and uh, he loved Barry Manilow, played Barry Manilow uh, pretty much nonstop. He, um, his nickname was Moondog, which I found out, uh, I didn't have to ask, I found it out because of its, uh, this, some strange noises that he made in his sleep. Uh, he had like these howling sounds that would come out of him at night. This was my first roommate in college. And he was claustrophobic. And so uh, we would do this prank. I mean, you guys know there's college dorm pranks, but we had uh, deadbolt locks on our doors. And so uh, you would prank guys by going to their room at night when their deadbolt was locked. And if you forced pennies between uh, the, the door and the, and the door jam, you could jam that deadbolt so it couldn't be unlocked from the inside, right? We call it penny stacking. So our door got penny stacked one night and my roommate lost his mind. I thought, I thought he was gonna hurt me. I thought he was gonna destroy our room. He was so terrified. He, he banged on the door. He was throwing stuff around the room. He was screaming at the top of his lungs at two in the morning. This was my first roommate. And I thought, oh, this is not the roommate I wanted. But it turned out it was the one I needed. He was an upperclassman, so he, he kind of was able to show me the ropes. He was very kind. Um, a very sensitive kind of person where he was, he was kind of aware that I wasn't the biggest Barry Manilow fan, but he was convinced to bring me around. Like, um, he, he, was, he was the roommate I actually needed my first year in college, but he wasn't the one I wanted. And sometimes Jesus is the Messiah that we need even when he's not the one that we want. When, when we come into conflict with Jesus over choices that we make and we say, man, I know God wants me to go this way, but my heart really says this and I'm, you know, I wanna follow my heart and the world says follow my heart and the movies and the books say follow your heart, but, but God wants me to go this way. And what I want is a God who says follow your heart, but what I have is a Messiah who says follow me. He's not always the Messiah that we want, but he's always the one that we need. So I just, I just wanna invite us as a church family to surrender to Jesus. Now, we use uh, two words to talk about Jesus, um, particularly when, when someone comes to Christ, but then these, these words follow us around, uh, titles for Jesus. We say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, right? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. We love the Savior part. I need someone to save me from my sins. I need a snake crusher in my life who will fight the enemy. We don't love the word Lord because Lord means ruler. Lord means he has authority in my life to tell me what to do and what not to do, who to love, how to love. Some of us want a savior, not a Lord. And today, I just want to invite us as a church family to surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior, to acknowledge that he is the Messiah that we need even when he's not the one that we want because we need a Messiah. So I want to talk through this. We're going to close. Uh, we're going to have a, a word of prayer here in just a moment. And I want to invite you to pray with me um, in three different categories. We're going to pray uh, for people all over the world who don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. They, everyone, every, every culture in the world has superhero type stories where they have these people that, these legends and myths that they talk about of somebody that can fight evil with supernatural power. 
And what they're looking for is Jesus. And some people don't know that. Some people don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I wanna think about those in the world who don't know about Christ and how we as a church family can pray for our, our mission partners in, in Haiti and Jamaica and India and Mexico and Salt Lake City who, who can communicate the message that Jesus is the Messiah that you're looking for. So we, we need it as a, as, a, as a world. I need the Messiah. I, I want us to think on an individual level. I need Jesus in my life to fight against the enemy. Man, does Satan not come after us sometimes and attack us in ways that sometimes seem, it's just impossible. Like, how are we, how are we gonna overcome this? Whether it's a fear or an addiction or an anger issue or anxiety or depression and these attacks of the enemy, how are we gonna overcome this? And we need a Messiah who has proven that he can, he can win. We need a snake crusher in our lives. So we, I, want, we're, I want to pray for uh, the lost people in the world. I want to pray for, uh, our, as individuals, our need for Jesus. And then, and then for they. The, and, the, and the they is, is it's, it's your neighbor. You know, it's, uh, it's your coworker. It's your family member. It's, it's people that you know who are far from God and they're, they're in your world and you bump into them and you have conversation with them and you care about them and they need a Messiah. And many of these people, they've heard about Jesus but maybe somewhere along the way they decided that's not the Messiah that they want. And so they've rejected him. And maybe there's a chance, maybe there's a chance that God can use us to show him that he's, he's the Messiah that we need. And we have an opportunity to love him well. So would you pray with me on those three fronts um, here and now? Uh, the lost around the world, uh, our individual need for Jesus and the people far from God in our own spheres of influence. God, thank you so much for sending Jesus, the Messiah. <clears throat> thank you that he is the one that we need, even when he's not the one that we want. We're so grateful, God, that Jesus conquers sin and sets us free, that we have the Holy Spirit in us, and we don't have to submit to our, the attacks of the enemy. But sometimes, God, it just feels overwhelming. It feels too much. We're not strong enough to remind us that Jesus is with us. He's on our side and he's for us. We pray for people uh, all over the world who have never heard of his name. They're looking for someone who can stand against the evil that they see in the world, but they don't know that it's Jesus. I pray that they would get the news, that you would, you would use those who are, are have committed themselves to spreading the gospel all over the world and that you would introduce people to Jesus more today, even as we speak. God, I pray uh, on a personal level that um, I would submit to Jesus as both Lord and Savior in my life. And I would, I would look to Jesus to push back um, the attacks of the enemy in my own life. And God, I pray for uh, my friends, um, the, my neighbors, the people around me that I know are far from you. And God, would you use me to be salt and light to show them how awesome Jesus is. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.